Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are Solution Architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and Deep Tech Dives in topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 78 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, I'm once again joined by Shai Perednik. It's December, and that means it's reInvent time. We have so much to cover, so many feature updates, new services. So we're going to make this a four-part reInvent recap. So we're going to focus today on core infrastructure and save the rest for the next few sessions. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about. I'm really excited and and the fact that we're actually breaking it up, we're going to go deeper. Um, that's really exciting. And I'm particularly excited about, guess what, storage. Uh, so you remember from last time, uh, that's where you lost me and you'll probably lose me again. So hold on there. Before we lose you to those spinning platters, let's tell our listeners about our last session. All right, fair enough. So uh, this year at reInvent, we had our first AIML keynote. Um, and so we're going to do the same thing here. We're going to dedicate episode four of this series just to that AIML. Uh, we're going to deep dive. We're going to have fun. Uh, but let's kick this uh, this session off with uh, some security updates. Alrighty. Okay. So I've got my tinfoil hat on, my vernacular <laughs> checked in to talk about controls and frameworks. I think I'm ready to get started here. So first one for today is for those security teams who work with Kubernetes and the open source Kubebench tool in their environment, which, you know, it's Kubernetes is going to be a lot of people. So Security Hub can now automatically receive findings from the Kubebench. If you're not familiar with Kubebench, it checks on whether your Kubernetes cluster is configured in accordance with recommendations from the CIS, so Center of Internet Security Benchmarks, supporting both CIS Kubernetes Benchmarks and the CIS Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, EKS. Kubebench findings about non-compliant configuration settings can now be viewed within Security Hub. For our customers who haven't used Security Hub, it's available globally, and it's designed to give you a comprehensive view of your security posture across your AWS accounts. With Security Hub, you can have a single pane of glass that aggregates, organizes, and prioritizes your security alerts, your findings, and multiple AWS services, um, as well as 50 other uh, APN solutions. Um, so how would you go to setting this up, right? First, you want to go into your console. You're going to head over to the Security Hub, and you're going to look for the integration submenu on the left side. Then search for Kube, K-U-B-E. Uh, you'll see the Aqua offering and click Accept Findings. Keep in mind that the uh, role assigned to your node group cluster has to have a policy allowing Security Hub the Security Hub uh, colon batch import findings permission uh, in order to pull uh, that data. Uh, if you go out there and search, uh, there's a great video by Liz Rice from Aqua Security uh, that walks the user through this. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, if you're eager to find it, um, go ahead and pause this podcast and search your favorite search engine for AWS Security Hub integration with uh, Kubebench. Uh, go ahead. We'll wait for you to come back. It's reInvent time, as we mentioned, and it wouldn't be reInvent without a new service. So AWS Audit Manager is a new service that helps you continuously audit your AWS usage and automates evidence collection to make it easy to assess whether your policies, procedures, activities are operating effectively. 
So you can use pre-built or customized frameworks. You can launch an audit manager assessment to begin collecting or organizing evidence, such as you know security hub findings in accordance with the requirements of an industry standard regulation. So maybe, you know, such as PCI DSS or CIS, as we just mentioned. So with Audit Manager, you can focus on reviewing the relevant evidence to ensure your controls are working as intended and build audit-ready reports with much less manual effort. You know, really save you a lot of time. So Audit Manager is going to be your friend if you need to produce audit-ready reports on a regular basis. It's removing a lot of the heavy lifting for you and what's more, it feeds data back into Security Hub. So Shane, I was, I was actually thinking about this. I was reading through the announcements. And I think this is another one that, you know, it might not be obvious at first. And you can kind of brush it off as, you know, maybe it's another security team's responsibility, right? But but in reality, compliance is really part of everybody's job. And you know, that's really important to think about that in an organization. Um, and sometimes uh, one person or a team missing a part of theirs can lead to really a bigger compliance fail uh, with fees sometimes, you know, in the millions of dollars. So it's just really important that everybody kinds of uh, thinks about security. Yeah, and look, I think there's plenty of examples in history, you know, where one person, uh, you know, something's been missed along the way and it's led to a much bigger problem. And look, as we say here, you know, whilst our messaging has changed, you know, during my time at Amazon, you know, it, maybe it's changed from security is job zero to security is the highest priority. In reality, you know, really it's everyone's responsibility. Yeah. So yes, I 100% agree. Right. The the more you can actually see in your environment, right, the less uh, you're going to be surprised, and the more uh, you treat your uh, remediation with automation. If you're a CloudTrail user, here's an update that I can see saving a ton of time. So we know CloudTrail provides an audit trail of events in your AWS environment. You know who did what, when they did it, etc. But we know if you have a heap of events and you're looking for a specific event type, you'll need to apply a level of filtering. So you can now retire your Lambda functions, your log passes, or whatever you would typically use as a means of filtering. So with this feature release, CloudTrail brings a feature called Advanced Event Selectors. With these, you can include or exclude values on fields such as event source, event name, and resource ARM. So it's the Amazon resource name. Advanced Event Selectors also support including or excluding values with pattern matching on partial strings similar to a regular expression, providing more control over which CloudTrail data events you want to log and pay for. Shai, I know you have some background in security, and with your excitement on the last launch, I'd probably say in regulated industries too. Why do you think this announcement is key for those in security? So let's step back and think what's the benefit of all this and where does it come from, right? Many organizations and their teams really want to be more secure. But sometimes when it comes to logging, teams find themselves having to walk a line between increasing the log verbosity um, and increasing their storage costs. It's a tough situation uh, because you never know when you're going to need that log in a support situation when that, when that might arise. So ultimately, it's going to provide customers more control over which CloudTrail data events they might want to log and pay for. Um, for example... Uh, you can log S3 delete object APIs to narrow down the CloudTrail events you receive um, to only the destructive ones. That really enables you to identify security issues while still controlling your cost. Um, if you detect unauthorized activity, um, then you can also take some uh, automated action and uh, remediate that uh, remediate that possible risk and maybe restrict access altogether. Um, you can start using uh, these advanced event selectors with AWS, the AWS CloudTrail console, the AWS CLI, and the SDK. Uh, when you create a new trail, which we recommend always, um, or if you edit an existing trail, you can configure which events or resources you want to capture. 
Thanks for that explanation, Shai. I knew from last time we'd lose you to stories, so I put that at the end of today's show. I wasn't expecting you to lose you to security and regulatory compliance as well. Okay. Let's pivot and talk about some of the more notable network updates. Yeah. Oh, so the next one I'm excited about too. Um, we have a few Transit Gateway announcements to start. Uh, for customers who haven't, haven't had a chance to use Transit Gateway, um, it's a service that enables you to connect thousands of VPCs and their on-premise networks using a single gateway. So much easier than we had to many years in the past. Uh, with AWS Transit Gateway, you know, customers only have to create and manage a single connection from a central region gateway uh, to each Amazon VPC, the on-premise data center, uh, or that remote office or that branch network. So Transit Gateway has become you know, the cleanest, most optimal way to connect VPCs, you know, your on-premise networks. And before I transitioned into this role, it was a key tool in dissolving that VPC spaghetti mesh peering, you know, where you've got lots of VPCs and you can struggle to understand, you know, how they appear together. Yeah, now AWS Transit Gateway uh, supports the ability to establish peering connections between AWS Transit Gateway in the Middle East, uh, the Bahrain region, Africa, Cape Town, uh, Asia Pacific, Hong Kong, and the uh, Europe Milan AWS regions. Uh, the ability to peer AWS Transit Gateway between different AWS regions enables customers to extend their connectivity and build global networks spanning multiple AWS regions. Um, it's really important to remember that traffic using uh, the. Tr it's really important to remember that traffic using the AWS Transit Gateway interregion peering always stays on the AWS global network and never traverses the public internet. Shane, um, given that you are an edge networking specialist now, why is this so important? This update is important because whilst it'd be great to have you know a decoupled architecture that's multi-region, I think the reality is many architectures may rely on a localized database, you know, or an ERP system. So this update, whilst available in other regions in North America in the past, now provides more choice in how you architect your network and software stacks. Another announcement is Transit Gateway Connect. This is awesome, actually. So a new feature of Transit Gateway that simplifies branch connectivity through native integration of SD-WAN or software-defined wide area network. So most field conversations seem to always almost talk about Kubernetes, right? But if networking is your thing, then you could probably replace Kubernetes with SD-WAN as it's really changing, you know, how builders build their networks. So until now, customers, you know, have had to rely on a, you know, a bit of a do-it-yourself do it approach for deploying SD-WAN solutions in AWS. So this approach, you know, usually involved, you know, complex provisioning, um, maybe a transit VPC, an overlay network, and that comes with some trade-offs, such as managing EC2 instances, which, you know, are going to drive up your costs, increase the operational overhead, and, you know, overall, you know, there's less heavy lifting that AWS is doing and more heavy lifting that you have to do yourself. But no more. So a great win here. Now customers can seamlessly extend their SD-WAN edge into AWS using standard protocols, you know, such as GRE, so generic routing encapsulation, and BGP or Border Gateway Protocol with just a few clicks. So apart from allowing integration with SD-WAN appliances, this update also brings improved bandwidth and supports dynamic routing with increased route limits. Thus, you know, removing the need to set up multiple IPsec VPNs between the SD-WAN appliance and the transit gateway. And, you know, and that's something firsthand that I've had to do in the past, you know, leveraging multiple tunnels just to get the bandwidth. Yeah. So this really translates into a simpler and cleaner network topology. Yeah, I, I just I was biting my lip, just waiting to jump in because I, I'm excited about this one too. Because 
you know, I was talking with my customer and, and we both got excited about this because we've been working about their network topology design for really the last couple of months. And it's our goal has really been to simplify their architecture. It, and this is really going to do that, right? It's going to help them simplify their overall network design. It's going to reduce their operational costs. Um, this customer I use, this customer I work with, right? They, they also use the Transit Gateway Network Manager, uh, which this integrates with. So now they'll be able to get, grab detailed network topology visibility, um, performance stats, uh, just work studied together. Sounds like it'll make things much easier for both of you. So let's take a look at Global Accelerator. Now we've covered Global Accelerator in the past, but look, if you aren't familiar with Global Accelerator, it's a networking service that sends your traffic through AWS's global network of infrastructure, improving your internet performance by up to 60%. So, you know, if you have a, uh, a, a service that is global in nature and it's going back to one AWS region, you know, Global Accelerator may be, you know, just a ticket for you. So with this update, you can now create a custom routing accelerator. Now, this is a new type of accelerator that allows you to use your own application logic to route user traffic to a specific EC2 destination while still leveraging the benefits of Global Accelerator. Now, we should explain the current accelerators first here. So standard accelerators, you know, useful for a wide variety of scenarios such as A-B testing, blue-green deployments, traditional API acceleration, video ingest, and so on. Since standard accelerators are designed to load balance traffic, you cannot deterministically route multiple users to a specific EC2 destination behind your accelerator, as may be required for some use cases. You know, you know, if you're talking about traditional load balances here, kind of akin to like, you know, sticky sessions here for stateful applications. So if you think about designing a multiplayer gaming application, you may want to assign multiple players to a single session on a game-based server, you know, based on certain factors. Yeah, like it, I, I was thinking about this. Like, so it's like geographic location, maybe the player skill, even uh, maybe a gaming configuration of some sorts, right? Like, that's what you're thinking. Yeah, exactly like that. Um, so, look, other examples could be, you know, VoIP, uh, social media applications that assign multiple users to a specific media server, and so on. With this announcement, a custom routing accelerator. You can route multiple users to a specific EC2 destination in a single or multiple AWS regions by directing them to a unique port on your accelerator. This feature makes it easier to integrate Global Accelerator with your application logic. You can now leverage Global Accelerator as a single point of entry for your applications while deterministically sending your user traffic to a specific EC2 destination in any AWS region. My colleagues Gibral and Vivek have written a great blog post on this feature update, so please check it out. So if your application is global in nature and tied to a single resource in an AWS region, just remember Global Accelerator is going to use our backhaul to accelerate your bits versus the public internet and speed up end user performance. Check it out. Next up is an awesome new feature added to the console. I say awesome as I can just picture myself five years ago, and I'm sure the audience can also picture themselves trying to debug connectivity between resources in your environment. So this feature update is called the VPC Reachability Analyzer, and it's a new feature that enables you to perform connectivity testing between resources in your VPC. So you'll quickly troubleshoot connectivity issues caused by misconfiguration and proactively verify that your configuration matches your network connectivity intent. So now think about the scenario with Reachability Analyzer. I'd use it to diagnose connectivity issues by simply performing a reachability analysis between a given source and destination in my VPC network. This makes troubleshooting so much easier. 
You can run a reachability analysis between an ENI, so an elastic network interface, in the same VPC or across two VPCs connected through a peering connection. You can also run a reachability analysis between ENIs and gateways, including internet gateways, virtual private gateways, and transit gateways. Shy, you ever run a trace route to try and follow the path and find the break? Oh, man. I have many times, I'm sure many of our customers have, it's, it's not fun. But, you know, really the problem with the trace route is it just tells you where the break is. It doesn't tell you much else, right? So it, it's like identifying, you know, it, it's to me, it's like identifying the street where the underground pipe is broken. And it's just not information to go upon. And you still have so much more excavating to do. Yeah, but, you know, you've, you've only got that street, right? All right. So, yes, I get it. You know, like, you know, it's narrowed it in, but we could do much more. You know, like, you know, it's broken, it's dropped at this route, then what, right? So, look, I get what you're saying. You know, trace route just gets you to the right area, but what next? So, if reachability analyzer, when the destination is not reachable, reachability analyzer will identify the blocking configuration setting, you know, and that's really powerful here. That could be such as a missing security group, you know, a rule or a routing table entry. Um, maybe we can use if for any of you who have participated in an AWS game day. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the things that the game engine does is often breaking network related stuff. Might have to try reachability analyzer. I digress here, but look, <laughs> using this information, you can easily distinguish between a configuration or an underlying network issue. When the destination is reachable, Reachability Analyzer will also provide hop-by-hop details of the virtual network paths between the source and destination based on the configured routes. You can run Reachability Analysis to validate your configuration and isolate any connectivity issues before running production workloads. Yeah, that sounds like cheating the example you gave before where you, you run the a Reachability Analyzer in a game day scenario. I feel like that's cheating a bit there. But yeah, you know, I was thinking about this scenario the other day too when I heard about it. Um, you know, you can really use uh, you can really use the results that come out of the reachability analyzer um, and, and analyze it like so. You know, think about it. You, you could you can take the results that come out of analysis, um, treat it like a config document, um, and then watch it for drift. Right? Maybe you do that daily. Uh, maybe do it more often. Right? You log it to S three and then you compare the changes. Um, you know, so it got me thinking like what machine learning models are out there uh, for this kind of data. Right? Like it would be similar to a trace route analysis. Um, I just wonder if there's anything out there. Look, I'm sure there's got to be some. You know, if our listeners know of anything, drop us a line and let us know. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. But you know, I think you're right there. Um, you know, in terms of like SRE, you know, site reliability engineering, performing diffs on code bases, diffs between machines, etc. You know, we're, you're effectively looking at your network configuration here and identifying, you know, problems, drift, et cetera. You know, it's, um, you know, a fantastic yeah. option here for customers who are trying to, I guess, increase the reliability holistically of their applications. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see just how people use this. I think I think we're just sort of scraping the, the top of what's possible. But I think kind of once people get their hands on this, the data that's out there, I think just things will go wild as to what they come up with. So I'm just excited. Um, yeah, let's let's move on. I mean, you, you know, I lost you there in networking, so I know I know where I'm going to lose you next time. You know, you're going to lose me in storage. Uh, but let's move on to compute. There's a lot of stuff here. Um, really exciting one here. So so next up, um, this one's really for anyone that's done any kind of development on a Mac. Uh, maybe you've done graphic design. Maybe you use the Mac for anything else. Um, but that Mac needs to run in the cloud. Well, now there's an EC2 Mac instance uh, for Mac OS. Um, these are running on real Mac hardware. 
uh, Apple Mac Minis to be exact, and now customers can run on-demand macOS workloads in AWS Cloud for the first time. Uh, the benefits of AWS really to all Apple developers. Um, customers can consolidate their development of Apple, Windows, and Android apps onto AWS, leading to an increased developer productivity and getting that next app out quicker. Um, this isn't just a Mac running elsewhere, though. Remember, since it's AWS, uh, you can easily use EC2 Mac instances with other AWS services and features. Uh, you'd provision your Mac OS uh, fleet in a VPC uh, for network security. Uh, then you might attach EBS volumes for storage. Uh, you might use the um, uh, ELBs or the load balancers for distributing your build queues. Uh, maybe connect them to Amazon FSx for a scalable file storage cluster. Um, then even tie them into um, AWS Systems Manager uh, or SSM for configuring, managing, and patching uh, the Mac OS, uh, Mac OS environment. So it's really cool stuff. So this update, like many of our other updates, is possible by our Nitro hypervisor and custom hardware. Now, if you search hard enough online, you'll see physically how this fits together. You know, kind of like a, effectively like a customized one RU, maybe half def case with a bit of AWS hardware and a Mac mini, you know, sandwich in there. Interesting stuff, you know, if hardware is your thing. So what are the specs of this new family of EC2 systems? And we know it's all about the specs here, and we are talking a Mac Mini after all here. Yeah, true. So let's get to the specs. I said before, these are Mac Minis, uh, but let's be more specific here, right? They're 8th Gen uh, 3.2 gigahertz or uh, 4.6 gigahertz uh, turbo, uh, core i7 processor, 6 physical and 12 logical cores. Uh, There's 32 gigs of memory. Um, and then you put all that on the Nitro system and you get up to 10 gigabits uh, per second of VPC network bandwidth and 8 gigabits per second of EBS storage bandwidth uh, through high, high speed through Thunderbolt 3 connections. I really like how we look around corners here. You know, if you use Mac minis, you'll know that they have a 1 gigabit Ethernet. And the fact we're leveraging Thunderbolt 3 to provide 10 gigabit combined for network and EBS actually makes this a usable affair. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, EC2 Mac instances are available in uh, bare metal instances, uh, Mac One dot metal, um, and support f- uh, support for Mac OS Mojave ten point fourteen and Mac OS Catalina ten point fifteen, with support for Mac OS Big Sur eleven coming soon. Uh, customers can connect to Mac instances via both SSH uh, for command line interface and active remote uh, screen sharing using a VPC client uh, for graphical interface. I think you said? Did you say VPC client? Oh, v- <laughs> I went VNC. Uh, I've just been living in the cloud. Yeah, it's a VNC client. Yes, there's <laughs> no VPC client. VNC client right. graphical interface. It is a, a VNC client, listeners. Okay, so look, one thing I want to point out here for customers, keep in mind here, look, you are running on dedicated Mac hardware. They are running on EC2 dedicated hosts with a minimum host allocation of 24 hours. So this means even though these are on-demand instances, you will be billed in those 24 hour allocation blocks, you know, not the one second increments you may be used to. Kind of wondering here, you know, can I leverage these EC2 Mac instances, you know, as a desktop replacement? Maybe that's something to take a look at over the Christmas period. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, right? So I was thinking about, again, what are my customers, right? What their use case might be. And so I think of these, um, you know, like the Macs for developers, right? You set them up on a schedule to boot with, uh, all the needed tooling that they might need at the start of the week, um, and then you shut them down at the end of the week, right? Maybe another use case is that it's a build server for an application, um, or it's an, it, or, sorry, it's a build server or it's an application, right? Maybe you'll need it um, once per week, uh, maybe it's once per month uh, to run a particular batch job, right? So instead of having to go out there, buy the Mac hardware, rack and mount and all that stuff that goes with that and maintaining that hardware, 
um, you're just going to pay that EC2 usage pricing uh, for the day and then just forego that infrastructure cost. Yeah, look, I really like the idea of using it as a as a build server. Absolutely. The 24-hour um, allocation blocks, you know, less than ideal, but, you know, perhaps you can, um, you know, have lots of build jobs running. Maybe, you know, you're doing a lot of things here to get the best usage for it. You know, obviously, you don't want to be starting these up for half an hour doing your thing and turning them off there. You know, understand, you know, I guess the resource constraints, that is the 24-hour allocation block and use them accordingly. Um, so I'm just going to group together the next couple of announcements um, as they relate to new instances, uh, new instance types specifically, not necessarily new instance families um, like the previous Mac OS one. Um, so Amazon EC2 uh, M5ZN joins the M5 family. These are new instances. Uh, these new instances are a high-frequency high-speed and low-latency networking variant of the uh, EC2 M5 instance, uh, powered by custom second-generation Intel Xeon uh, scalable processors. Uh, specifically, this is the uh, Cascade Lake uh, processor for uh, those who love their Intel processors. The M5 Xeon instances are available in seven sizes, ranging in uh, ranging from 22 to 48 vCPUs with 8 to 192 gigabytes of memory and provide up to 45% uh, better single-threaded compute performance and then EC2 M5 instances. The M5 ZN instances also feature 100 gigabits per second networking with support for the Elastic Fabric Adapter and up to 19 gigabits per second uh, throughput uh, to the EBS volumes. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. How I read this, though, it's basically we've got faster single-threaded performance, you know, via a new CPU family and 100 gig networking. Um However, you know, in another family, the D family, which is our storage optimized family, we have some new updates. Storage optimized EC2 D3 and D3N EN instances are now available, similar to the M5ZN. D3 and D3EN have a uh, the have the Cascade Lake processor, two and a half uh, times higher network higher networking speed, forty five percent higher disk throughput compared to the D2 instances. The extended storage and high speed networking variant D3EN instances. Uh, provide up to seven and a half higher, seven and a half times higher networking speed, a hundred times uh, higher throughput at disk speed, seven times uh, more capacity storage capacity, and eighty percent lower cost per terabyte storage compared to the D two instances. Uh, these instances are an ideal fit for workloads uh, including distributed cluster file systems, big data analysis, uh, high capacity data lakes. Uh, D three instances are available in four sizes, ranging from. Uh, 4 to 32 vCPUs, 32 to 256 gigs of memory, 6 to uh, 48 terabytes of local uh, storage. Uh, the D3EN instances are available in six sizes, ranging from 4 to 48 vCPUs, 16 to 192 gigabytes of memory, and 28 to 336 terabytes of local storage. You know, as you were, you know, going through these stats here, just a reminder, listeners, you know, as we release new instance types, and I guess new features, you know, throughout AWS here, you know, you just mentioned 80% lower cost per terabyte compared to D2 instances. Just a reminder, you know, to upgrade to the latest generation of instances, um, you know, it's off there are basically in all cases going to be cheaper in terms of uh, cost per performance or per storage, per memory, or whatever the metric is, you know, regarding that instance family. So, you know, in this scenario here, just by going from a D2 to a D3, you know, 80% lower cost per terabyte of storage. That is huge here. Okay. 
So look, just to make sure we don't lose you to storage, I'm going to jump in here and get some cold water. So the right. EC2 R5 instances, so these are our memory optimized instances. So the R5B instances can now utilize up to 60 gigabits of EBS bandwidth and 260K IOPS for large relational database workloads. So these instances offer significantly higher EBS performance across all instance sizes here. So not just the large ones, ranging from 10 gigabits of bandwidth on the smaller instances through to 60 gigabits of EBS bandwidth on the largest instance size. Now that's some pretty serious IO and network here. And there wouldn't be too many databases using more resources than this, you know. R5B instances are ideal for large relational database workloads, such as, you know, your Oracle DBs, your Microsoft SQL Server, MySQL, and running applications like, you know, busy, um, you know, OLTP commerce platforms, your ERP systems, and so on. Okay, so next up are our EC2 G4 AD instances for graphic intensive applications. So the G4 AD instances are powered by the AMD Radeon Pro V520 GPUs and the second generation Epic processors. You know, they're going to provide 45% better price performance over the G4 DN instances. Now, what I like about this is, you know, we're actually embracing Team Red. You know, it's about choice. We speak of x86 versus ARM. Well, now there's AMD and NVIDIA-based GPU solutions on AWS. And you may find, you know, that certain frameworks may be optimized, you know, specifically for, you know, one GPU architecture over another. Or, you know, it could come back to that, you know, price to performance cost ratio here. So these G4 AD instances are available in not all AWS regions. So today they're available in US East, North Virginia, US West Oregon, Europe Island regions. They're available in three sizes, providing up to 64 vCPUs, four GPUs, and 256 gig instance memory, 2.4 terabytes local NVMe-based SSD storage, and 25 gigabits of networking bandwidth. What a machine. So I got my, my cold drink of water here, I cooled off from a bit of storage, but I, you know, I was thinking a bit about the other day when we were talking about uh, the dry heat of Australia's time, we were talking about that. I think you were saying it's like 105 or something. Yeah, it was around 105. You know, it was a hot day. Yeah. So, so what you're, you're telling me that, you know, I, I was trying to read about this next announcement. I was thinking about local zones, which was announced last year at reInvent. Um, and even though it was December, 2019, the uh, temperature still got up to about a hundred. Uh, into the 100 marks, right? And you remember what our first local zone was? You know, I do remember December 2019 at reInvent. Look, obviously I was there, um, but I think I spent most of my time last year in an air-conditioned hotel room, probably recording this show, to be honest. I th- I'm probably getting out at night. It probably wasn't too hot here. But look, our first local zone was in Los Angeles. Yeah, and that's where I grew up. Uh, so another desert city that gets up to 100 uh, plus Fahrenheit uh, in temperatures, right? Albeit very dry desert heat. Uh, anyhow, I, I digress. Well, we're announcing a preview of AWS local zones in Boston, Houston, Miami, with plans to launch 12 additional AWS local zones throughout 2021 in key metro areas in the United States, including Atlanta, Chicago, and New York. Uh, using these new AWS local zones, customers will now be able to deliver ultra-low latency applications to end users in cities across the continental United States. AWS local zones do not replace availability zones. They are a type of AWS infrastructure deployment that places AWS compute storage databases and other select services uh, closer to a large population in uh, closer to a large population and industry or IT centers where there are no AWS region exists today. Uh, you can use AWS local zones to run applications that require single-digit millisecond latency 
uh, for use cases such as media and entertainment, uh, content creation, real-time gaming, uh, live video streaming, uh, machine learning, augmented reality stuff. Um, and you can seamlessly connect those applications uh, to full services of in the AWS region through the same APIs and tool sets. I actually haven't had an opportunity to play with local zones, but I do believe that they appear as an availability zone within your local region yeah. to which they're you know associated to. Yeah, they do. Okay. So for customers that leverage AMS or Amazon Managed Services, you can now use AMS to manage workloads on an AWS outpost. So outposts, you know, that big 42 RU rack that you might put in your data center, colo space or on-premise environment. So with this update, AMS is going to take responsibility for managing your AWS outpost infrastructure, the resources hosted on outposts, what's providing you a simple API for provisioning new capacity, requesting changes and reporting incidents on your environment. Now, this is a good win here as these outposts are used by some of the most demanding customers and in some of the most remote places in the world, such as mining sites in the Pilbara in Australia, and I'm sure others. Yeah, this might not sound like much, um, and some of our customers might tune out if they're already established in AWS, but think of it this way, whether you have workloads in AWS or not, um, here's an option to get a slice of AWS on-premise uh, in the form of AWS outposts. You then have an AD, you then have an AWS uh, sorry you then have a AMS which is a managed service for managing your AWS environment on top of that. So now you have uh, an on-premise managed slice of AWS. You migrate your workloads to there and have a AMS manage that environment. Then when you're ready, you can work with AMS to migrate those workloads uh, to the desired AWS region, retire the that AWS outpost along with the on-premise data center. Thanks for the insight, Shai. So look, I know you work with many local Pennsylvania customers who could probably benefit from this. Maybe they're listening and caught it. Who knows? However, let's move on to Amy's. You know, in my three and a half years here, there's there's not a single acronym I get more I get more confused faces for uh, than AMIs or AMIs. There we go, <laughs> potato, potato. Um, so look, I just say, Amy, you might call it an AMI. It's up to you. But look, with this update, you can now add tags to your Amy-based and EBS snapshots during AMI resource creation. Now, when I when I read this, I thought, hey, can't you do this already? Um, and, you know, you can, but look, previously you had to tag your Amy after their creation, which required an additional API call and had the possibility of missing an untagged Amy when tag-based controls are used. So with this update, you can do it upon creation, you know, through the create image API or the console. And by tagging resources at the same time of creation, you're going to eliminate the need to run a custom tagging script after resource creation. And what's best, you know, it's available at no additional cost in all AWS regions. Okay, so workspaces. If you're a workspace customer, this one is for you. So the Amazon Workspaces Streaming Protocol, or WSP for short, is now generally available. So WSP is a cloud-native streaming protocol that enables a consistent user experience when accessing workspaces across global distances and unreliable networks. I'm just going to hone in on the unreliable network side here. So look, WSP also enables additional features such as common access card and personal identity verification, so smart card and video camera support. So this new streaming protocol, um, WSP for workspaces is now available, but Shai, why is this actually of importance to customers here? So if you've been in, in any kind of VoIP or any um, sort of call center type of environment, um, 
you you'll often have worked with agents uh, that will use um, use uh, remote desktops. Um, you know, if you run a, a a VDI shop where you have a big VDI environment, you know, one of the challenges that you might have out in the field might be. Uh, those remote devices. And we've had protocols for many years, um, and those protocols have improved over years um, to improve, uh, to reduce latency and reduce overall jitter across the overall packets. Um, and that's really what WSP is. It's it, that native uh, cloud streaming protocol that we created uh, specifically for workspaces um, to reduce that latency and reduce the overall jitter. Um, so hopefully this is just going to give a better experience for customers uh, with no cost and no changes to them. But then the other cool thing is that, that on top of this, that you, you you kind of could do before, but it was hard and you had a lot of workarounds. Um, if you wanted that in that CAC card, which is a very common in a military or a Department of Defense environment, um, you had to sometimes work with a certain device's drivers and make sure that those drivers worked with your backend devices. Um, and you had those mismatched uh, driver versions sometimes, which would bring a challenge. Um, and so instead of having to worry about that, this just encapsulates that in that WSP protocol. Um, and now it's not really as much of a concern and it makes things easier for customers. Cool bananas. All right. So <laughs> here is the portion of the show where let's talk about storage. And look, I know it's your favorite part. So why don't you take it from here? Oh boy. There are a lot to get to in storage. Uh, so much so that I heard this year's, uh, this year's first week being referred to as a storage avalanche, uh, given the flurries of announcements. I see what you did here. So we have the Snow family of storage devices and hence the flurries. Um, first, there's new uh, GP3 EBS general purpose volumes. Customers can now provision performance independent of storage capacity um, and achieve up to 20% lower price per uh, gigabyte than existing GP2 volumes. Uh, this isn't just a new family of storage, though. Um, with these new GP3 volumes, uh, you can scale those IOPS and the throughput independently of each other. You don't need to provision additional storage, additional block storage capacity, nothing. Um, and best of all, you're only going to pay for the resources that you actually use um, and need. Um, and so, again, like before the EC2 example, right, um, no reason not to migrate. You save cost, gain performance. Um, you can easily migrate from GP2 volumes to the GP3 um, using the Elastic volumes. Um, this is a feature, it's actually an existing feature of uh, Amazon EBS that allows you to modify the volume type, IOPS, throughput, uh, of their existing EBS volumes without interrupting your Amazon EC2 instances. So just do all this stuff on the fly, um, you know, plan a, a change, uh, make that change, move to the GP3, um, gain that cost, that performance. Quite a handy update here. You know, there have been many times in the past where, you know, I've had to provision a whole heap of storage just to get the IO. And the fact that they're now decoupled and independent from each other is really good here, um, you know, allowing you to get the performance without having to procure terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of storage here. So a great win for customers. All right, so this was GP2 volumes in EBS. Let's talk about three announcements for IO2. And if you're an SAP customer, these are of particular interest for you. Our IO2 volumes, you know, our provisioned IOPS offering are now supported for SAP workloads. IoT volumes also support provisioning 10x higher IOPS to storage ratio, up to 500 IOPS for every provision gig, so customers can provision more performance without increasing the spend on storage. And I'm sure that there is an SAP note to show that this is supported. Next, we're reducing the price of provisioning peak IOPS, so 64,000 IOPS and IO2 volumes by 15%. Let's talk about a new EBS volume type here called the IoT Block Express volumes, and they are designed to deliver up to four times higher throughput, IOPS and capacity than IoT volumes, which you know is quite a lot already, while delivering sub-millisecond latency and three nines of durability. 
IoT Block Express refers to IoT volumes running on the EBS Block Express architecture. Shane, I'm going to jump in here and geek out for a minute. Remember the days of having to figure out how much disks you need on a sand shelf to get a certain number of gigabytes or terabytes of storage? I think I just spoke about that, actually. Yes, that's exactly... Uh, well, maybe I've done that in AWS, but you know, back in the days of traditional sands, it was all about how many shelves of storage do I need of 15K RPM SAS disks in order to get the amount of IOPS you know, that the business needed. Imagine this right now, right? So you, you'll, you're going to sign up for the preview for IO2 Block Express. Once you're approved... Um, any new IO2 volumes that you create in your account for that region you uh, that you get will run on EBS uh, Block Express. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to deploy or plan anything else. Um, it's just there for you uh, once that's uh, effective. All right. That does it for EBS updates. Let's move on to S3. So take it away and I'll jump in when we lose you in the world of IOPS again. <laughs> Fair enough. So let's get to it. Um, with Amazon S3 replication, uh, so Amazon S3 replication now gives you the flexibility of replicating object metadata uh, changes for two-way replication between buckets. Um, you can easily replicate that metadata change um, for objects like ACLs, object tags, or object locks on the replicated objects. Uh, this two-way replication is important if you want to build shared data sets across multiple regions and keep them uh, and keep all object and object metadata changes in sync. You can enable replica modification sync on a new or existing replication rule when replicating bidirectionally between two or more buckets in the same or different AWS regions. You can apply it to the entire S3 bucket or a subset of S3 objects uh, filtered by prefix or object tags, then monitor replication progress or of objects and object metadata on the S3 management console or in Amazon CloudWatch by enabling S3 replication metrics and notifications or S3 replication time control. Now for our listeners hearing S3 replication time control for the first time, we assure you, you know, it's not a time machine. It's uh, got nothing to do with that. S3 replication time control helps you meet compliance or business requirements for data replication. So S3 replication time control replicates most objects you upload to S3 in seconds and 99.9% .9 of those objects within 15 minutes. So here's an update around S3 that, you know, is actually quite interesting will reduce costs while simplifying your architecture here called S3 bucket keys and will reduce the request cost of S3 server-side encryption, so SSE, with KMS by up to 99% by decreasing the request traffic from S3 to KMS. So within a few clicks in the console and no changes to your applications, you can configure your buckets to use an S3 bucket key for KMS-based encryption on new objects. So to understand why it's important, let's step back and understand what the process was before this announcement. Picturing a customer as I talk to you about this and going through this same conversation probably a few years ago. They've got millions of objects encrypted with KMS using SSE. Um, you know, and this workload can generate a large request of volumes to KMS. You know, they actually had to increase their limits. And this is because KMS encrypted objects in S3 use an individual KMS key, and S3 makes a call to KMS for each read and request to these objects. So millions of objects in your S3 bucket, you know, they're having to be decrypted via a unique call for every object to KMS. So with S3 bucket keys, a bucket level key is generated by KMS. And then S3 uses this bucket key to create a unique data keys for objects in the bucket, avoiding the need for additional KMS requests to complete the encryption operation. This results in a reduction of request traffic from S3 to KMS, allowing you to access encrypted objects in S3 at a fraction of the previous cost. Yes, yeah, so, so think of it this way. I don't think it's that obvious at first, right? If, if you um, 
if you don't need object level encryption keys and a bucket wide one meets those meets your security requirements, then this will just save you on KMS costs. It's kind of a easy thing to do here. Let's get moving, but we still have three more storage related updates uh, before we wrap up. Um, and I'm beginning to feel a little snowed in here. Aha, uh -huh. but look, just going back to that, um, you know, it's all about choice, you know, whether or not you want to do this at the object level or at the bucket level, you know, it is, you know, a lot of these updates are just, you know, bulking out the feature sets of our service offerings. So feeling a little snowed in here, how many more puns do you have left for today, Shai? Well, considering we started recording this earlier than last time, I'd say there's probably a few more up my sleeve. <laughs> but let's move on to S3 consistency. Um, Amazon S3 now delivers a strong read after write consistency automatically for all applications uh, and for any storage request without any changes to performance or availability uh, without sacrificing regional isolation for applications and at no additional cost. Um, like the last announcement before, we have to talk a little bit about history, I think, to understand this. Um, when using big data analytics applications, um, they'll often require access to an object immediately after that write. Um, without that strong consistency, you would need, um, an you need to insert some sort of custom code into these applications, um, just to give you that awareness. So after a successful write of a new object or an overwrite of an existing object, any subsequent read request immediately is going to receive the latest version of the object. You know, this is a pretty big change here. So S3 also provides strong consistency for list operations. So after write, you can immediately perform a listing of the objects in a bucket with all changes reflected. So Shai, being you are the storage geek, you know, not that typical developer, I'm gonna quiz you here as we talk through four examples of how this behavior would work. You know, what if a process writes an object to S3 and immediately lists the keys within the bucket? Okay, so in that case, the updates to a single key are atomic. Uh, so if the requests are subsequent and not concurrent, uh, then the object uh, will appear on the list. Correct. Okay, so look, how about if a process replaces an existing object immediately and then tries to read it? Well, then this is similar to before. Amazon S3 will just return the new data. All right, two for two. Okay, so how about if a process deletes an existing object and then immediately tries to read it? Okay, so it's it's deleted, um, and that operation, like other operations, is also strongly consistent. Um, so Amazon S3 will not return any data as the object has been deleted. It's kind of a trick question, that one. Okay, so I'm glad you got that. And final one, you know, how about if a process deletes an existing object and immediately lists keys within its bucket? Oh, okay, it's getting harder. Okay, so so this is this is kind of the inverse to the second example then. But like my last answer, you gotta remember operations are also strongly consistent. Um, so the object will not appear in the listing. Fantastic, that is four for four here. So you know your S3 stuff here. Let's talk about S3 replication. Yeah, thanks Shane. Um, so this next announcement has a special place in my heart as I've worked with many customers over the last three and a half years uh, that have asked for this feature. Um, now with Amazon S3 replication, you have the ability to replicate data from one source bucket to multiple destination buckets in the same uh, in the same or different AWS regions. Um, if you want to create or maintain multiple copies of your data in one or more AWS region, um, this is a super easy way to get it done um, and then watch that replication uh, in CloudWatch uh, through CloudWatch metrics um, to track the replication progress for each region pair and then do some cool I mean, stuff after that. So you know, I thought of like, what's an example of this? Um, and, and you know, probably one we're going to use with my customer too is um, 
Okay, so so one example of that is going to be uh, a use case where you have a shared data set in an application and you replicate that data set um, from maybe one bucket to multiple buckets in the same or different AWS regions uh, for maybe DR or backup purposes. Um, another example might be where you use SD replication to push a software installation file to many different regions. Um, and then by putting that um, installation file in that region, you reduce that latency for that user um, and they can grab it at the region that's closest to them. Um, S3 replication is uh, multi-destination is an, actually an extension to S3 replication. Uh, so it's not like a new feature or service. Um, and it will support all S, all existing S3 replication features, um, like the S3 replication time control we talked about before, uh, or RTC. Uh, you want you can again the replication metrics uh, that you can use for notifications. Um, and then there's also the delete marker replication. Um, you can use the um, S3 management console to take advantage of this. This is also available via the SDK uh, API or AWS CloudFormation uh, to create SD replication multi-destination rules uh, to have your data flow from one bucket to multiple destination buckets. Fantastic. Okay. And finally, the last of storage announcements today, you know, if you're thinking you have a workload that will use the Snowball family of devices, one of the key ways to reduce cost is reducing the time you keep the device on-premise, you know, we're charging you for that. We've found through working with customers that many times these delays incur in, you know, in racking and setup of devices versus time spent copying data onto the device. Okay, so we're excited to share that there's a free digital course to help you, you know, get the best out of the Snowball family of devices. You know, so this course is designed for storage engineers, cloud architects, migration engineers, and these introductory and intermediary courses include reading modules, video demonstrations, and quizzes, you know, and roughly speaking, it'll take you between 50 and 90 minutes to complete this course. We started by covering security, then we moved on to networking, compute, storage topics for today, um, starting with CloudTrail event logging, uh, data granularity, and updates to Security Hub, integration with Audit Manager. Uh, then we talked about QBench, um, and then we had some compute stuff. So yeah, on the compute, we had a plethora of new updates here. So M5ZN, a bit of an acronym there for network heavy workloads, you know, um, high frequency, great for single-threaded performance, 100 gig networking. So we've had the D3 and D3EN for storage workloads, the R5B and G4AD. So these are the, well, the, the G4ADs are the AMD-based GPUs. You can now run Mac OS workloads on AWS today with the EC2 Mac instances for Mac OS. New local zones coming to um, metropolitan cities near you in America. And finally, you know, AWS Managed Services now supports Outpost for a managed on-premise slice of AWS. For the edge computing fans, you know, Transit Gateway into region peering comes to new regions, not just inside America. There is Connect Transit Gateway to SD-WAN with Transit Gateway Connect, and you can create custom routes in Global Accelerator. And one I'm super excited about, the VPC Reachability Analyzer. Close us out with those storage updates, Shai. I'm biting my tongue on the puns here, so let's get moving. A uh, bunch of updates to EBS, new GP3 volumes, tiered pricing on IOPS. IO2 volumes will get a 4x uh, boost in performance and capacity. And what do you use that extra power for? Well, IO2 volumes now support SAP workloads. Um, in the S3 world, we have uh, two-way and multi-destination replication support, bucket keys to reduce the uh, cost of server-side encryption, and Amazon S3 now delivers strong read-after-write consistency automatically for all applications. Fantastic. So look, that's it for today, folks. Uh, join us in the next reInvent recap. Where we'll be covering developer-orientated topics. Keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email at awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive the direction of this show. Thank you, Shai. Um, pleasure having you here today. But until next time, bye for now. 
signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com.